you don't need to have superheroes. You can shine a spotlight just on a couple on the couch who are of a certain year having a conversation and there's beauty and there's romance and there's amazing things in that. And that's always been like what I've tried to sort of hone in on. Meet Dave Scott, otherwise known as the poet R. Kid. Dave grew up in Longsight and Levenshume and he says it wasn't the kind of environment where you expected to get a career in the creative industries. But after 30 years of pestering his mates with what he thought were song lyrics, Dave bit the bullet and booked his first show. And his mates soon stopped taking the mickey after that. Dave is now the official poet for UEFA and the NSPCC and he's worked with Manchester United for whom he's had a lifelong love. Dave's show on BBC Radio Manchester showcases creative talent from across Greater Manchester. I recorded this chat with him at Gorton's Hideout Youth Zone, an amazing facility for young people, where Dave used to be the creative arts coordinator. And going by the welcome he got from the team there, he is very much loved. I wanted to hear all about Dave's values because he lives them. You'll hear about the poetry that comes from everyday people in Manchester. And what better way to celebrate that than with the performance of Dave's poem that first went viral, Nana Calls Me Cock. Dave, thanks so much for joining me on We Built The City. No problem at all, looking forward to it. You're a born and bred Manc, grew up in Longsight and Levenshume, and you said that you were surrounded by storytellers, so I want to talk about those stories with you. But first of all, I'd love you to start with a poem which made me howl out laughing and every time I hear it now, it does the same and it made me fall in love with Manchester even more being brought up in Salford. Could you tell us Nana Calls Me Cock? I will indeed. This is called Nana Calls Me Cock and it's actually the first poem that uh, I actually released publicly so I'll perform it now. My Nana calls me cock, which don't mean cock as in erection. You see, my nana calls me cock. It's a sign of affection. She's not potty or senile or going round the Ben, Gordon, Bennett and Flaming Nora. They're not imaginary friends, but Southern folk. They think we're having a laugh whenever they hear the words that come out of our gaff. Gaff's where we live. It's our house, our home. Where we escape the miver. Where we're left alone. Miver. It's when someone's pecking your head. Just calm down, yeah, and winding your neck. Everything I'm telling you is all dead good, and dead isn't very not an overcoat of wood. Dead and well, well, they sort of mean the same thing, but you wouldn't say dead mincy. It's all in the phrase. If something's mint, it's cool, it's fantastic. If it's mint, it's great. And the opposite of mint is anging like a dodgy plate of scran. Now, this bit gets complicated because the time of when and what we eat is nationwide debated. We eat dinner at tea, and at tea we have our dinner. And if you bring down an ugly bloke for tea, Lisa, he might be called a minger. Your kecks are your pants, chuddies are chewing gum, snides are tight, sodden a mad arse, shows his bum. If you're gagging, you're thirsty. If you've been lamped, you've been hit. Having a strops being moody and ring sting leaves your bottom in bits. If you want something for now, then you must be on the cadge. And if you're really proud of yourself, you need a chufty badge. A sound sort of selection of words you'll hear on a Mancunian block. So don't be upset if my nana calls you. A cock. <laughs> oh my god! Everyone in our neighbourhood calls us cock in Salford, <laughs> and you know, like people are so shocked, aren't they? But it's just such a really affectionate Mancunian dialect, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the the idea for that poem must have been when I was about twelve, thirteen years old, in the grounds of my nana's house, and because a lot of my friends came from different cultures. 
they didn't understand the word cock outside of the you know the part of our private privates. But so when you knock on the door, and I go, you are like cock. They'd all just rip the mick out of me, all left, right, and centre. And it just captures everything about being Mancunian. That whole poem, doesn't it? So you just said that you were thinking about that about poetry when you were twelve. Even those days, you're kind of thinking about lyrics and words and. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I turned ten or eleven, I really started getting into hip hop music, and for me, it was like that was a a new way of expressing yourself and telling stories and stuff, and just like creating rhymes and stuff. And that was that was really interesting to me. But yeah, the the idea for that particular poem was about twelve. I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna turn that on its head one day and then make a poem out of it. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And do you get a big reaction every time you tell that? That's probably my like greatest hit, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one that everyone asks me to sort of perform all yeah. the time. But I, I absolutely love performing it because it's, um, like I said, it represents the the language that that I grew up amongst and that we're using this great set. And you performed that, didn't you, on Stream GM in one of the lockdowns? Yeah, that was bizarre. Uh, not so much for the poem, but because it was just such an empty room. I performed in that room before when it when it's been full, and then to just perform to a camera, it was um, it's quite daunting because a lot of the times when you're an, an artist you engage with the audience and you, and you need that sort of reaction so to do it cold like that I, I, I didn't enjoy it to be absolutely honest uh, the, the reaction was fantastic uh, afterwards but it was just with everything that was going on it was it sort of brought it at home very much so I remember I did watch it in my kitchen but and it's interesting about the audience because Bryony Shanahan was on the pod I think on the first series um, and we had a really interesting conversation about how she said that the audience changes the performance every night so that you get so much of that energy from the from the audience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for, for better or for worse sometimes, I've, what, I've, what I've learned when I first started doing poetry, uh, I've performed at gigs in like Wigan where the audience weren't into poetry at all. So it's really, you know, it's, it's quite hard to sort of engage with them. But another time you can pick a face in the crowd and then you'll sort of perform towards them and then that, that, that sort of generates your, your impression. But yeah, each crowd crowd uh, definitely definitely brings a different atmosphere mm. but like you say in say in Wigan Sam's here he's from Wigan so it's Hi, like Sam. poetry Sam that's, that's not indicative of all people from Wigan <laughs> no I, one I, likes poetry in Wigan <laughs> but the point is that there is a stigma isn't there against poetry I mean but it's people understand that poetry is just a form of words and it's an expression isn't it when you get your head around that perhaps it's more accessible yeah uh, I don't think it exists to the extent it did when I was growing mm. up like I, I grew up in uh, the 90s in Manchester so to be a poet then was all about running through flowery fields and stuff like that and that was absolutely nothing to do with my life when I was giving Shakespeare in uh, Spurley Hay High School which is around the corner from here it could have been a book in Korean do you know what I mean all the poets were talking about lives that I had nothing to do with so I don't think that it's not that poetry was a problem it was the context that you were sort of given the, the stories and stuff and you know as you get older and you do read Shakespeare there is a hell of a lot to relate to it but Otherwise, it was it was just completely inaccessible. But I think nowadays, uh, teachers and the education systems are a hell of a lot better. And even just the five six years that I've been doing poetry, poetry has just exploded now, not just in Manchester but all over the world, which is great to see. Although I do look back thinking that if I had tried to become a professional poet now, it might be a little bit more difficult than it was previously. Really? Yeah. 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 You've referred to poetry in the past being like middle class thing but do you think that's changed then you're saying now I definitely think so I mean you, you only have to look across the the open mic nights across Manchester in terms of how many people are doing spoken mm. word or poetry I hate I hate that people actually try to when I first started I came out of all these sort of branding ideas how do you look cool or stand out from them middle class because you do get a chip on your shoulder thinking like if I'm not allowed to be part of that world then I've got to try and do something differently so I was like I'm a street poet, urban poet. And I was like, I, I look back and cringe, honestly, now thinking about that because you want to try and 
carve out something for yourself. But I did have the belief that it was a middle class art form. But the more I've done it, it's like, well, no, art is for everybody. It's just that, you know, I think that it's the the preconceptions that I was built with through education. But I believe now more more than ever, it's, it's become a, an art form that, that all classes are using. Mm. When did you know you're a poet and how did that evolve? I think people started calling me a poet before I was calling myself a poet because I was more like a failed rapper or musician or whatever because it was just I had I was writing all these lyrics and stuff and had nothing to do with them and uh, it was a good friend of mine comedy comedian uh, Emma Kenny who read my lyrics and said you need to do something with this you need to go to an open mic night so I started doing that and up until that point I thought what people stand up in front of other people reading poetry and I thought that sounds like the worst night ever <laughs> why would anybody want to do that but then um, I went along to it and uh, it was amazing it's like I, I, it's like I grew up in this city that you know that's so creative and uh, responsible for so many fantastic, not only musicians, but authors and artists of all sorts. But that very much felt like um, a world that I didn't belong to. So that it was like, I liken it to, you know, the Wizard of Oz where you pulled the curtain back and it's like, oh, right. So, and then, and then that's, I think that's when you sort of realise that it isn't uh, something for another class. It's, it's for everybody. So first open mic night was in the castle and then someone came over to me and said, well, how long have you been a poet? I'm like, oh, am I, am I a poet? Is that, is that, does that make me a poet now? I've just reeled <laughs> off two Bobbins poems <laughs> on stage. Is that all I needed to do all these years? Um, so I suppose that, that was just the, the inkling that there might be something in this because he was getting a, a reaction. Because usually it was just, I'd write lyrics and send them drunk to, to my mates at like three in the morning when they'd leave before, <laughs> when, when they'd be ditched at 42s in town and then they'd be off on the bus somewhere. What do you reckon to this? And like, nobody would reply anyway. So that was the only time I'd really share anything. But I, you also said that you used to be on the dance floor and they'd be all dancing and you'd be in the corner yeah. writing lyrics and take the lyrics over. Yeah, because I, I, the, the use of words for me has always been, um, that's always been my attraction and probably the reason why I have such a, an eclectic taste in music is because it was the music the sound of it was always secondary to what they were actually saying. So what had happened is I'd listen to, I don't know, a Smith's lyric or whatever you'd listen to, 42nd Street. And then that'd trigger off something else in my mind. And that that, that still happens to this day. It's like some someone can mention, I don't know, bus on Hyde Road and that'll like trigger memories and stuff. And that's what used to happen. And I get the the fear of forgetting, especially when you've had a skinful in 42nd Street. <laughs> so I better get it down now. I'm a Nokia 3210. <laughs> <laughs> that took some time to yeah. get down there. And so when was your first performance then? Did you your mates come along to see you then and that was the first time they saw you in action? Yeah, so uh, following on from my um, the open mic night, I thought, right, you know what, I'm just going to throw myself into this. I'm going to do a Manchester Fringe Festival uh, gig. I didn't even know if you called it a gig or mm. performance, you know, because performance still seems a little bit flowery always oh, going to perform you know and i mean that's not really going to swing it with my mate so i told them all that was performing at uh joshua brooks is yeah, it in town? Yeah, yeah that was my first gig that would be five years ago this year i think it is and basically i emailed them all text them all and then to a man everyone was like i hope you fall on your ass i hope this is shit <laughs> seriously so i know i'm not swearing this podcast but that, that was the sort of camaraderie about it i hope yeah and like they came along more to ridicule their friend <laughs> rather than sort of moral support and then they came off stage afterwards and all that why have you waited so long to do this and oh, I was and I was like and that's the sort of I've never really been one for for validation past that point because mm-hmm. anybody who sort of knows me in a wider circle post then probably because of the poetry but the people that I needed to be reassured of was in that room that night, do you know what I mean? So any, anything past that point, whether they, they like my work or they like me, I mean, I don't, I don't try to perform or write 
for anybody else to give me the thumbs up, you know, so, so, it's, so it's all subjective anyway, isn't it? But at that point, that was like, it was like a middle finger to my mates, but with love. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm sure. And that is just kind of Mancunia support, isn't it? Saying, oh, you've fallen your ass. Yeah, it's actually oh, done with affection. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, there was no malice with it at all. And I'd have been more nervous if they'd have been nice about it. And like, oh, you'll be great. I'm like, oh, piss off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how did you feel when you were just about to start that gig? It's nerve-wracking. It's probably the most nervous I've ever been. And I've performed in like rooms full of thousands now um, and nowhere near as nervous as a room of 120 people that were your closest friends mm. or dying to rib you at the bar afterwards. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was probably the most nerve-wracking experience outside of fatherhood. Oh, absolutely. And what do your family kind of think? How do you... you got three daughters, have you? Yeah, I've got yeah. three daughters. I keep getting dragged into their schools. I've just been in for Aspirations Week, so the the the, uh, the teachers there know what I do for a living. So my eldest, she absolutely loves it. She's really proud of her dad. Uh, my middle daughter is still trying to work out what I do, and the other one, she's only just turned four, so she's none the wise. But yeah, the... They're happy that Dad's doing something he enjoys, I suppose. I hope to try and, like, because um, it was a long time where I had a career or jobs that I hated. I hope, if anything, that I can show them that, or anybody really, that if you just persevere or take chances on yourself, that, that there are opportunities mm-hmm. out there. So what did you do before that? What was your journey? What kind of jobs did you do? Um, I was the podcast. <laughs> I mean, that, this is the reason I don't think I've been on This Is Your Life, because it's probably only like a five-hour five hour version. Um, it's a wide and various CV from working at butchers to being a chef on um, barges. I've DJed in Greece. Uh, what else have I done? Push bread for 12 hours a night up and down in factories. I've, been a, I've worked in some of the biggest advertising agencies in Manchester as a contrast, uh, bar work, everything like I think I've only ever been sacked from a job twice, probably because I didn't turn in, because I've been out on a Sunday, not one on a Monday. <laughs> that, that's usually the, the road to ruin for me. But it was, I, I'm confident that if I was in school now and they were they were diagnosing for ADHD, I think I would definitely have that. Because if you haven't got my interest in something, then I find it very difficult to sort of, uh, to carry on. But if I am interested in it, it's like I run at it at 100 miles an hour. Like, that's that's the thing that I'm, I'm concentrating most at the moment. But once that's gone, it's like, I've never been one to work for wages, uh, not in the sense that I don't need them, but just because I find uh, the it sounds really cheesy, but I, just the, what you're doing, I think I think you know you're, you're here for a short time, and I'd rather just enjoy it. And when I wasn't enjoying work, then it'd be fine time to find something else. And was there a moment at which you thought, right, I'm going to do this? Yeah, so it was after the Joshua Brooks yeah. gig. Um, I thought, right, this there might be something in this. So uh, I then National Poetry came, National Poetry Day came up in the September, and I I thought it was released. I gave um, Nana calls me cock, put it online, and then I messaged my mate who worked at the uh, who's a journalist, and he said, "This is amazing." Uh, I said, right, and so he put it onto the evening onto the evening news, the evening news put it onto their website. And then it, I think it did like 500,000 in an evening. And for some reason, I couldn't, the numbers weren't going right on my phone. So I had my friend Emma, who, who was one of, who was like, I nicknamed her Bunsen Burner because she was the kick up <laughs> She was the one who lit the fire under my ass. Um, so, so she's like, Have you seen the numbers? And it was just looking like 2,000 views. And for me, that was like 2,000, amazing. And he goes, No, it's 25. And I'm like clicking it. And it wasn't working. And she goes, Like 500,000 people have viewed it. And I thought, Jeez. And it's like, it's now or never, you know? And I think, I do, I do often reflect and think if I didn't 
quit my job there and then off the back of that what would have been doing I know I'd, I've never shied away from work but I just wondered like where I would you know probably an, an elongated CV even more uh, so I decided to quit my job that week I was working in a radio station in Oral Wish FM I was writing like radio jingles or radio adverts which was a creative job yeah but I didn't want to be a car salesman, you know, writing mm-hmm. adverts for cars. Mm-hmm. For cars. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that job either, but just what not wasn't what I wanted to do. So I basically walked into office and said, I'm leaving. What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm going to see if this poultry gig works out. And then my wife is, we've got one kid. We've got a daughter on the way. Uh, my wife was seven months pregnant. I had, a, like, what, maybe a grand and a half in the bank at the time. No no security blanket, and then quit my job. And she goes, you know what you're doing? I said, I don't know. I said, but if I don't, I said, I, some, it was just like, it was a gut feeling. And people like say to you, you're, you're off your head. I messaged like a lot of my mates and told them what I'm doing. It's like, you're mental. Who quits the job to be a poet? And I said, I know, I know. It was just, a, I've always been one, one that runs on gut feeling. So I just, yeah, so I quit my job. I mean, it was the longest sort of, thankfully the traffic was bad on the M6 coming back from Wigan. Long drive home. Yeah, I was like, Mullin should have turned back and told my boss it was all a mistake. But yeah, I stuck to my guns, told my wife and she supported me. Um, and that was in November, and as you'll know, November, December, January can be quiet months in, in any industry. So there was no work coming, in, and not that I knew how to get work or anything. I just presume I presume that like once I handed my notice and I had no profile, and that the, the poetry doors would be open to me like, <laughs> here you go, Dave. You know this this world is all yours. Have all this money, and, and that wasn't the case in the slightest. And then like. Um, is my wife's cousin Ben, who used to work for the BBC, who was a massive help for me. Um, it's actually the anniversary; he passed away two years ago this this week, actually. Uh, I never really got to thank him, but he was he was working class, but worked at the BBC, and he basically he wouldn't take no offer answer, and he just basically kicked doors down and got me got my like first commission, and that was to work with Crystal Recklestone, which was a great thing. And again, he sort of showed me the ropes and not to take no for an answer, and it's more about who you know and building relationships because as much as I'd like to think that I've got a talent that backs up why I've been successful so far in my career, I'm aware that also it's down to not only being successful at your arts, you need to be successful at building relationships because that's, I think that's as as important really as the sort of products that you, uh, I hate referring to my art as a product, but you know, yeah, you know what I mean, as I think you're yeah. creating. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, we talk about relationships and the importance and having purposeful ones. Um, at Roland Ransfield and obviously you know 25 years of the the business now and there are lots of great organisations in the city that do what we do but I really think that what we focus on is building those and making sure that we treat people well and we have integrity and it's interesting I was on a podcast the other day it's like a business podcast and the interviewer asked me if there was and it's a great question which um, subject or theme would you have on the curriculum as mandatory that's not already on it? And I said, building relationships, because your life is your network or your network is your net worth, isn't it? But more than that, it gives you your purpose in life and those friendships and those connections. We all need those people around us to, to give us that leg up, don't we? And we do that in, in return. We know you do a, a huge amount of work, which we'll come to later to create those relationships to help other people too. So... So you must be very grateful to your friend who really opened those doors for you. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, I, it was like the Facebook memories came up, and it was his, it was his funeral to to um, this week. It's two years of it, and it just I never really got to thank him for for, mm. for doing that because um, he didn't have to do it. You know what I mean? And it's just like he showed he showed me the sort of blueprint about how everything works, and I think once you sort of see that. 
then it doesn't become so fearful. Because I think sometimes a lot of people who are outside the the industry see everybody who's in it or who's on the TV or who's on the radio or who's been a success. They sort of put them, and I'm guilty of this myself, and I'm, I'm saying this because I've, I've seen both sides of the, of the divide, is that you put them on a pedestal that they made, that they like, what did they walk on, bloody candy floss or you know they, you know what I mean they're made of magic beans and it's interesting the more people I've met and usually the most successful artists are usually the most insecure people as well uh, and I think when you can get your head around that that we're all just blagging it really mm. we are I mean in, in, mm. any, in any profession you know the, you, you you get to a certain point and like you look behind you and I'm like how the hell did I do all mm. that and it's just you know you, there are mm. no there's no rights or wrong ways about doing things and stuff like that. And I think that, that that was probably the biggest eye-opener for me was when Ben sort of showed me that, okay, he's been a success, but he was a bit of a charmer and stuff like that. And then like not, not in a malicious way or anything like that, but he was just sort of showing me that relationships are the, are the key to success mm. as much as anything that's coming out of your mouth. Yeah, definitely. So let's just go back to the storytelling. You said you grew up surrounded by storytellers and your family's in an Irish family, did you say? That- it's a mixed bag. Uh, to be, yeah, my mum's side's Irish, my dad's side's Indian, Italian and Scottish uh, by some murky past between grandparents it's, 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 <laughs> that's it, interesting it, it is interesting it makes for a hell of a Christmas dinner <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so predominantly I spent a lot of time at my mum's parents growing up they were like Irish from uh, County Cork and Roscommon I think my, my nana was from but just the pubs as well like obviously you know, the stereotypes comes from somewhere doesn't it for grew up in an Irish community group in Lemesume and it was just Little Island, really. I never know why that t- didn't take off because you have a Chinatown, but Levenshoom was always Little Island, you know what I mean? They, and the Irish community doesn't seem to be there like it used to be when I was growing up. But the pubs you'd walk into there and the characters and the stories you'd hear, just from domestics that were going on at home to people, they do these like really hard working old Irish men that were had hands the size of shovels that has been spending all day digging on the roads and stuff. And they just, you didn't need a jukebox. And this is again what I mentioned before about being at 42nd Street and the the inspiration of lyrics over music is that you didn't need music in them bars you could just listen to the stories even as like secondary you know air wigging and stuff like that i mean you'd probably if you weren't attuned to the the irish accent you may need subtitles <laughs> in some of the situations but um yeah it was just, it's just fascinating it just opens all especially for me and my imagination it just opens up worlds of possibilities about how you can take that situation and then either make a poem about it or a song or a screenplay and it's just my mind sort of it sees things or it picks up on stories and then it'll just sort of open up this whole weird world I mean I sound completely potty now looking at you I can't look at you. <laughs> but that, that, that's what it's like and then and just yeah you'd walk amongst all these sort of different walks of life and stuff but it wasn't just the the Irish community again like I've got like mates who are from so many different cultures my best mate Nathan his family's from a Jamaican background so that you've got that influence Mm. as well and like a a black culture was huge influence in me when I was growing up and then when I was listening to hip-hop music they were the way they were telling stories a lot more sort of relative than the pop music because at that time there's no internet so you don't have Spotify and you don't have the the access to this world of music when you're buying tunes it was always an investment so you're not you know to spend your 15 quid oh, I'm going to have a gamble there on that new Britney Spears <laughs> no. CD you know you're not, you're not going to do that so you, you stick to what you know and then once we were sort of passing around bootleg tapes of Tupac or Biggie and stuff like that that was always and, and you're a young lad growing up in a in a rough area uh, you're going to be attracted to the, the sort of 
danger in the lyrics and stuff. And you know, when you're a kid, everyone loves hearing a swear word and a song and stuff. So that 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 was an attraction. But um, just telling all these sorts of stories, and that's always been a massive influence on me. Oh, my mum was from Levin's Hume, and so my grand was, so, and she's that's a granny who called us cock too. But I think I look back to when I was growing up, two sets of grandparents, they were massive storytellers, and we all used to go around to Manans, and we'd all do a turn at Manans, so we used to have to go behind her curtains and come out and do hours of like <laughs> thunder around the living room to a Hall of the Mountain King by Pagan, I seem to remember, every Sunday. But everyone told stories and they were fascinating I can remember them now you know it's just lovely to hear those local stories come back through yeah. you know through poetry or through content like that what kind of stories did you hear I suppose from your family when you were growing up you said there was a kind of mixed heritage there was there anything that that you felt that you maybe even use now or influenced you I suppose the stuff family-wise that's um, been used most of my work was when I found out that my dad's dad wasn't his biological father and that was about the, around the age of I was about 20, 21 and then that threw a huge curveball because up until that point you think you're one thing and then you realise your dad's actually a mixed race and then it's like oh right well what does that mean for my identity and stuff so that, so that was a huge thing and then there was always the I don't know if it's like the working class thing or, or I mean nobody likes sharing the, the, the secrets but it was all there was a lot of like opening up skeletons and stuff like that so it was always that sort of thing and I've never really been shy about talking about myself i don't see any any sense in it but um stories were just like i don't know domestics like said my mum and dad would argue all the time but not in a not in a horrible way it was more like jim royal and barbara yeah bickering yeah i mean that, that, they'll listen to this and they'll hate that but yeah but the, the, yeah. the bickering and it's the pinpointing and i think this is why someone like alan bennett is fantastic in what he does and not that i try to mimic that in, in, in what i do but I think that there's so many stories. You don't need to have superheroes. I'm not knocking people who are into that sort of thing, but it's not my bad because I think there's so many stories. You can shine a spotlight just on a couple on the couch who are of a certain year having a conversation and there's beauty and there's romance and there's amazing things in that. And that's always been like what I've tried to sort of hone in on. So if anything, not specific stories, but just sort of seeing that them little gems exist. And I think sometimes we look, try, we try to look at... Um, fantasy world when we've got so much beauty in front of us mm. yeah that's really true and I think the, your poem about the northern quarter as well I think that that's just absolutely beautiful and it, it tells the whole story doesn't it you kind of you can feel that you can feel the northern quarter first from 15 years ago and then exactly what it's like right now yeah I mean I've come up from a bit of stick for that poem because I think it was misunderstood as being a digger hipsters when it wasn't. No. I mean, I, I, it was, I love in there. I yeah, think. yeah, and it's um, it's quite tongue in cheek. Mm. I, I I love quiche, you know, mm. <laughs> as much as the next man and and, <laughs> uh, and, and, and falafel. Uh, but it was just more to sort of show how um, the area was changing yeah. and document that, and also that there, there are sort of lives lost, not not in a physical sense, but they're being moved out of yeah. certain areas because yeah. of gentrification. And now this isn't unique to to Manchester and stuff like that but I think that these areas need to be spoke about you know definitely and be remembered and celebrated as they were otherwise you know they do disappear don't they I think that's really important yeah you refer to that kind of like humour and sarcasm and nostalgia as public toilet sink realism yeah just tell me is that what you're trying to say with that would you say it's the it's the beauty in the everyday yeah I mean that's exactly what it Mm. is really so it's like you can I've been in toilets where someone's been broken up with a girlfriend and he's sobbing his heart out and then seeing another bloke who looks like the biggest strongest meathead who you'd think was you know rough as hell 
be so tender to his mate because he's crying his eyes out. That's a fantastic thing. We don't celebrate that sort of stuff because we all like to see the sort of macho side of being, I don't know, northern blokes and that's, I hate that stereotype. But yeah, I, that, that's exactly what I mean is that there is beauty in, in everyday things, even pub toilets. Absolutely. I also, I used to write loads of poetry when I was younger and stuff and, um, and I love writing now, but just capturing those moments and something that you just see that you probably people around you aren't seeing but I mean I feel very nosy because I do find myself getting absorbed into people's little vignettes and my kid's dad he's very creative as well but he had this terrible trait where he got so engrossed in watching other people and observing them that he'd like start walking like them or something <laughs> and we'd go what are you doing he went oh I'm just trying it out just wow. <laughs> it's just literally would get engrossed in in the small stuff and he, he agrees that the beauty's in the stuff that other people perhaps don't see around you have you got any poetry to share then Lisa no I have, the, I'll put you on the spot I, in your honestly podcast. I, re- I really really don't but I've got books and books of stuff that only recently my mum hoyed out of her loft and made me have and um, I used to write loads and I used to write full volumes of books and illustrate them so I'd like grew up on Enid Blyton and the, all the girls going off to boarding school and I thought that was amazing and I'm in Salford I thought I really want to go there so I've always loved writing my daughter writes songs she tells some wonderful stories as well so I think it's an amazing outlet that, I mean that's what I talk about my my show a lot is when people don't have to have uh, creative outlets mm. for any sort of career ambition it's more than that you know mm. like when I was 30 years when I was scribbling it wasn't never to sort of make money out of it, it was just no. because it was an outlet and stuff yeah. like that. and I think that first and foremost why you should do it for yourself definitely and I think since I've got a creative career I've probably been less creative because I'm doing it for a job than, than I would do if right. I had another job strangely yeah and you just said before about you started that being a poet in November <laughs> bad time yep. as you say and it's a gig economy isn't it I mean you're a creative person you're not getting your pay slip every week how have you found that and adjusted to that particularly you know over the last 18 months but this is the thing is that I literally had no idea how people became made a career out of poets I, I wasn't very up to clued on commissions from places I didn't know that that worked I didn't know people would get paid for gigs and to be honest when you get paid for gigs it's not worth you know you, you, yeah. you can buy milk and bread with it. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest pay your poets more if you listen out there um <laughs> But it's difficult and I always think that you have to be able to do more than one thing. Uh, if I do, And I think this is probably where it's beneficial to have such a colourful CV as mm. mine, Lisa, shall we say, is that I can sort of dip my toes into so many different waters to earn money. And that's why I sort of take so many jobs on really mm. to trying to pursue a career as an artist because it's, it's not easy and like mm. I said over the last 18 months it's been it's been incredibly difficult uh, I've not mates who have been in bands and because they just couldn't sustain it just called it a day because being in a band anyway is is you don't make any money out of it so it's hard, it's hard to sort of dedicate that time to do it and that, as an industry I do worry where that sort of leads to nowadays um we might be getting like a decade of Coldplay's on the way because it, 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 <laughs> I mean that's not a dig at Coldplay. It's that to sustain the time to it takes to to gig, to practice and to rehearse, you need that sort of uh, the money behind you to be able to do that. And I speak to many of the uh, the musicians and artists that grew up in the the nineties or eighties, the noughties even. You've become friends now, and they say that they say there's no way on earth that they'd be able to become musicians today because back then they had a bit of grace with the with the dole money and stuff because mm. you could stay on the dole for twelve weeks, not because the dole wanted you to become a musician, but because you got a little bit of time, and that, and then that would be seen as being musicians and stuff. And now it's just it's just, it's so difficult to pursue any sort of artistic career. So I do worry for the future, really. Mm. 
You've also supplemented that work, haven't you, with a lot of work you're working with young people. So you've been working in schools with sitting here in Gorton in Hideout Youth Zone. So tell me a bit about that work. Uh, yeah, so uh, one of the things that uh, I found out when I went full-time or professional as a poet was to, that you could do workshops, so go into schools and stuff. So I've been doing that for the last five years, and that's been going into prisons, or going to like young offenders institutes, primary schools, secondary schools. And I just basically try and teach them or unteach them really I think is the or you have to unlearn what you think about what poetry is because even to this day whilst it's better than in the schooling systems that I had there is very much the sort of barriers that people and it's usually young men as well I think the reading interest of, of young boys falls off by the age of 10 and 11 so when they get to high school it's like their interest in books or poetry or anything by and large doesn't exist so I come in and try to be the person to show them creativity with a different light and sort of say okay well you don't need to be talking about running through flowery fields you can be talking about running from police because that's what I talked about in my poetry just tell your story and be honest with it and be proud about the stories that you've created because like whilst I turn the the lens outwards a lot of the times and the things I see a lot of the time to talk about the stuff that I've got interest in oh sorry the, the stuff that I'm going through and also to show them how that can be uh, a mental health exercise to how to, and a coping mechanism for themselves as we were talking about previously regarding sort of writing poetry at home. So I started working at Hideouts uh, two years ago um, and uh, Adam Farrakar who, who, who runs the place couldn't have chose the worst time <laughs> in history to open a youth centre really. Uh, but the facilities here are amazing and I wanted to get involved with this is because I went to school less than a mile down the road there uh, the school's not doesn't exist anymore uh, and I just think it's amazing that there's something like this that exists in a place that, that I grew up in because um, without trying to embellish my my youth I've lost a lot of friends to a variety of different things that they didn't need to be getting up to because they were without the opportunities that this place mm. uh, gives the future of today It's an incredible place isn't it and you talked about the work that you've done with say young offenders what impact have you seen just poetry and young people understanding and perhaps even getting involved in writing that that having that creative outlet what impact have you seen from the the, positive from them yeah a lot sometimes it's difficult because you get like two hours with them and they um at first are quite reluctant to try and speak to because again if you think young boys and young lads have barriers within um, the confines of a school. Can you imagine how difficult it is trying to eke out them being any sort of creativity or sensitivity within a, a system that, um, you know, it's just, you've got to su- you've survived really, isn't it? So you, you put up more sort of barriers and stuff. But I don't pull any punches and I talk honestly regarding what I do and where I come from and my upbringing and stuff. And then we start, I start showing them and just basically lay, lay it all out there on the table. Like I've lost friends to, to suicide, to, to drug abuse, to gang culture. And then when they see that you're willing to put all that out there and then give exam, and then I'll give examples of other people that do some sort of things and on a, on a larger scale. And we look at like the Tupacs or M&Ms or whoever. So it's just to show them that it's not an isolated life that they've had and that sometimes the things that they've gone through can be put down on paper and expressed to tell interesting things and some of the some of the times it's just used to be escaped for out of their self for a while over times i've seen it where they've continued and come out of young offenders and i still get emails now from people that have um that have changed their life around but i'm not going to be that naive to say that i go in and try and save everybody but it's um a lot of the people not to not to excuse any of the crimes as to why the people are in them situations 
but there's definitely a continuing thread as to the background as to why as to where these people come from you know is there's not, not no one from didsbury in that in that in there you know there's no one from charlton and so so it's trying to show them that life has given them a shitty end of a stick now you can either grab hold of it and say oh this is this is all i've got or you can fight back and um not not physically but you know uh, uh, through creativity or even just a determination i don't want to go into the prisons or even to the schools and say that you have to be a poet what I, my mo is to go in and say you don't have to be what society's expecting of you anything I know, I know you want to talk about legacy later on that's what i want to try and do in a uh through my career or any work that i go in is to say that okay you may be expected for factory work call center work for this for that and that's not to downplay any of them jobs because they're fine jobs and i've got family members and friends that do them jobs but there are more options out there for you you can just have to look beyond what your preconceptions of what they are mm. and what does that do for you what do you get out of that work it's great. I get enjoyment and um, I buzz off it. Really, I mean, you, you, I mean, most teachers will say if you work with young people, it, keep, it keeps you feeling young. My kids will sort of contrast that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be honest. But um, it's a top laugh, and they will keep you on your toes and make you see things through a different light. And this is why I always find it interesting why we don't have more young people in politics or making decisions and how it's why we're looking at Manchester at how Manchester's run as a city because these are the people that are going to be using the city with over the mm-hmm. next 10 15 years it's like I'm 40 now and I still I feel old enough I feel too old for, for, for the for the city so when the IRA bomb went off in 96 and then pulse that and I saw how the the direction of the city was changing that didn't feel like the case for me that didn't feel like the case in Lemajum or Longside and stuff like that. So you're asking me in terms of what, what they do. I, I'm going well off one and getting all political. Um, but I just wish that the young people, because of they're so full of enthusiasm and full of ideas, that they would have more of an opportunity to have a say in how their city is being run. And that's what I get when I work with them, is just seeing these sort of sparks of creativity. And, I, and a lot of time, because I'm like what, 25 years older than them, plus that like the world they're talking about, I have no idea. And it's like, it's, it's a learning again. So when it's, when I say Nana calls me cock poem, even that's dated now because it's like, you know, because the <laughs> yeah. slangs doesn't it work. Different, different slang now. Yeah, it, it doesn't yeah. like, what? Nobody's Nana calls them cock. <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, so it keeps me, keeps me on my toes. That's, um, it's very true. I mean, we can talk about values then now because it's clear that you use your platform as a poet and the fact that, you've done something that you weren't expected that was out of perhaps people's expectations of what was right for you um, to help young people think about different routes for them. So what values drive you and what's important to you and what, what have kind of got you to where you are now? Values, honesty, I think, in, in terms of what you're doing for work. And if you're going to, especially when you're working with young people, a lot of the young people I work with have been let down, um, either in family structures, schooling systems and stuff. So if you're going to work with someone of, of a young age that's already feeling vulnerable, honesty is key. And don't pull any punches in terms of what you're, what you're going to do. And if you can't come through on it, then tell them the truth, because otherwise you're just compounding everything that's gone before. So I find that I think honesty is massive in that sense. Obviously, our values as a business, which is important to us, but what you just said there is we have one of our values is no integrity slippage, which is do what you said you'll do the way you said you'll do it, when yeah. you said you'll do it. And it's not always possible to do that, but by having that as a value, you can call yourself to account, can't you? Yeah. You, if you set out with that um, intention, yeah. 
to not say or do something, not do it, when you know you can't do it. It's better to say, no, I can't do it and draw that boundary than it is to make promises that you can't keep. And the same as an individual, speaking to a young person, for example, just make that commitment to what you can do. Yep. There's that cognitive dissonance scenario, isn't there? Yeah. Otherwise, that you, people are saying, I'm going to do all of that, but they're not doing the small steps that are required to get anywhere near it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the thing is, is that if me or you were let down, then I think uh, for whatever reason, we can sort of deal with it. But when you're a young person, that let down feels a hell of a lot. You know, it's like when you get dumped when you're, when you're younger. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. a lot harder at that age. So I think honesty is definitely key. Uh, my other values is that I don't, I don't allow myself not to try new things. I'm always trying to push myself forward and it's very rare that I'll get given an opportunity. It's only it, that might be outside my comfort zone. It's like when we talk about the, like the radio stuff, I had no, no idea that I could do that. But I was, I was offered it and I said, would you try? Would you like to try and do that? I said, yeah, okay, I'll try and do that. Well, I love Are it. Are you very good at uh, it? Thank you very much. But, <laughs> I, but I, I enjoy it. But I, I mean, it could have been awful, but I, I, I never would have known. No. You know, I, I'd rather get to the end of my days and I've tried every flavour of ice cream in the shop rather than just <laughs> stuck with vanilla. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, John Thompson said the same thing on the podcast. And also, I think, like, if you'd gone and done that radio gig and you were crap at it, you wouldn't have enjoyed it. So I think if you enjoyed it, it's generally like you're doing okay. So it does kind of keep you on track, doesn't it? They're not going to yeah going to plow on if it's not something that you're enjoying yeah I mean and if it was rubbish them friends are still there from the from the yeah. Brooks I would have quite quite gladly had a go at me although they do question my taste in music on the show <laughs> so in terms of our values is anything there that kind of stuck out for you uh, so no dickheads was, was the first one that sh- jumped out at me um I don't understand the the ego that people need to have. I don't I don't understand what what you get from acting like Kanye West. I don't get what, what Kanye West gets from it myself. Just be be humble in everything you do because I think that if you think you're the what's the saying? If you think you're the smartest person in the, in the room, then you're in the wrong room. I think that can be applied to ego as well. If you if you feel you're better than everybody else in that room, then you've no place to be in that room. I, everything I do, I try to be humble with it. Um, it sort of ties in with another one of your values regarding cleaning the sheds. I'm always cleaning the shed, cleaning kids' rooms. <laughs> You're a dad of a free dog kid. Walk, everything, <laughs> so I'm always cleaning the shed. But I enjoy it. You know, again, this might sound cheesy, is that I hate finishing projects. I really, not not because of the dissatisfaction of having a completion, but just the, like I've made music videos, I've made music, I've made poetry, I've worked on collaborations. I think there's a lot that can be translated to life in itself with this is that it's the process of making something together. It's the collaborations. Again, we go back to relationships we were talking about mm-hmm. previously. That's the fun part. Yeah. Ending that is just like, no, what can we not go I back, know. you know? And and, and that, I, I, that I find really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. It's awful when something fantastic comes to an end. Yeah. And the No Dickheads, you've got a, a poem. It's Dickhead DNA, isn't I it? Yeah. yeah, it's a song poem. Like, yeah, whatever exactly. You want to call it. Yeah, Dickhead <laughs> DNA, yeah. Uh, that's probably one of my favourite songs that I've released, <laughs> that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and we turned that around quite quickly. We, it was when the, they were having all the EDL matches down in London, and within a week we'd recorded it done a video and got it out within, within a week but yeah Dicker DNA the lyrics have span out of my head now because you put me on the spot but yeah check it out if you're listening but the other one I wanted to talk to you about was um, Keep It Real I think we've pretty much talked about that but Plant Trees You'll Never See I quite, I quite like that one uh, especially with the work that I do with, with schools have you heard of the Chinese bamboo tree? you ever heard of the, the right so 
The Chinese bamboo tree is a tree that requires to be watered every single day for five years, and you don't see any development. You don't you don't see any change in it, right? So people will go out and just see this patch of mud, not seeing anything that's growing underneath it, and we'll go out every single day, water it five years, right? No, you can't see anything, and then on the fifth year over um, over forty days, it will grow something like thirty foot. And I try to say that into schools, like sometimes you can't see the progress or the development that you're making, but as long as you keep going out and trying to to water your foundations, then you don't know where it's going to go. And I look back at my career and that sort of sums it up. It's like up to the 30 years I was doing beforehand, I was still writing in the background. And then I had quite a trajectory, but that wasn't based on the fact that uh, I hadn't done anything previously. A lot of people don't see the the groundwork that people the, the ground people do. So yeah, the Chinese bamboo I tree. I love that. And is that actually real? Is that a true story? Yeah, I'm not bullshitting you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just pulled yes, that it, one out of it, nowhere. It, it's a Chinese imagination. Out of a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some bamboo in my yeah. garden. That it's the neighbours, but it was in my garden. I'm not very happy about it. <laughs> And also, you're a lifelong United fan, aren't you? So that yeah. must you. So you got the, the, a great job there, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, they've not called me back since they've been a bit critical about the Glazers and well, and, and Solskjaer, mm. which is uh, expected. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that was a dream come true mm. to be walking through them them roads and to be stood on the pitch and stuff was was quite incredible. Um, yeah, big Man United fan all my life, and that that a lot of people look back and say is that that was like your peak of your career. So, well, what the hell's going on in life? That was the peak. It's all downhill, and it's just like no, exactly. it, that that was all right. I've still got you know. I'm not a nostalgic person, so I don't try to look back on what I've yeah. achieved. I try to to look forward to what I'm doing next. But that, yeah, working with the club was, was amazing. And so, what you're doing next? You've got a new book out. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I've got a book that is due to the publishers by the end of February and it's a biography of my time growing up from the late 90s to early noughties but also sort of twinned with the events that were going on in the city at the same time from the from the IRA bomb and then just looking at how certain themes that were happening around the millennium impacted my life directly as a young person, but also affected other people who grew up mm. around Manchester. Really interesting, because I set the business, Roland Dransfield, up the month after the IRA bomb. And it is interesting, and I was at Richard Lee's leaving dinner the other night, and that tracks his whole career, obviously 25 years, and he did, he kind of did a video where he walked through all the, certainly the regeneration and how the local community being impacted. It was that interesting quite nostalgic yeah. but you talk about this book that you're working on now about being the missing chapters of Manchester don't you so what do you mean by that what I mean by that is that Manchester as a story um, during that period I believe is told through the eyes of a few people that didn't live in Manchester at the time and now obviously we're talking about the Gallagher brothers or you can go back a little bit earlier the Hacienda it's very sort of it's from the outside in. I've never really heard any, read any books. I've seen any documentaries from what it was like living in the city at that time as being, a, as being grown up. So it's to sort of tell the story from the inside out rather than the outside in. When you look at the documentaries of the the Hacienda or Oasis or even the city, or even the football times, it, it can be from the stage to the audience, whereas this is more from mm. the audience looking outwards. Mm. And, and that's what I think by missing chapters. And missing chapters also because like I've not really put my my life story down. Mm. And the thing is, it's not. It's what I find quite interesting is that my life story isn't too dissimilar to a lot of the people that I've sort of interviewed uh, in the books for, for for better or for worse. Some some of it, some of it's massive contrast, which which has been great because it's, it makes more of an interesting read. Mm. That that point about um, 
the lens on Manchester. You know, it's true, isn't it? My son's 22 and he says Manchester, it's, it's not just about the Hacienda and the bees. He drives him mad. Yeah. Because it's, it's not his view of it. It's not his experience of the city. And he said we're still trading on on, on historic nostalgia that's not relevant for young people today. It's, it's, I find it, I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but we're very quickly, if we're not already there, turned ourselves into, the beat, into Liverpool with the yeah. Beatles because we do, we put that weight around our ankle or shackle, shackle ourselves to the past then you can't move forward mm. and I, I think it's a I think it does a disservice to the artists that live in the city centre today that we always look back and use that as something that we should be comparing them to or they should be fulfilling something that was over a quarter of a century ago how mm. dare we mm. I know and it's you know even a lot of people haven't been in the city centre for a long time you know during lockdown and we were in but People hadn't been for 18 months and they couldn't believe the rate of change in the city. You know, the, some of the building that's gone up and it's, we're third best city, which is not true, is it? Time outside of the third best. But look, at the, we're an international city, aren't we? And it's, we're not a theme park. No, we're not a theme park. And I think that, um, who, who, were the, who was number one and number two? Uh, San Francisco and then Amsterdam. Ah, pretty cool cities. They are cool know, cities, but there's been a there's been a brand envelope there somewhere. Come off. Has it really? Well, yeah. must be. Yeah. I've never been to San Francisco. I do fancy it though. I've been there. Yeah, a Is long it? time ago. Yeah. yeah. But I know what you mean. That we're definitely not a, a theme park. No. We're not far off it, though, are we? Not, you know, all we need is someone to be in a couple of Gallagher suits like Mickey Mouse walking <laughs> up and down Deansgate holding everyone's hand for photo opportunities. Can you imagine that? That's what we, could, that's what we should do. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but we do it ourselves, and that's, and that's, no. a, that's a frustrating thing, isn't it? Is because I think that we came from a time, maybe, I know the Hacienda was very more cultish, but the Oasis and um, the bands or Manchester around that time seeded to put us on a global scale that that is become our currency to trade on because I think maybe we're that nervous that we can't get it again and, mm-hmm. and that's, what I, that's what I mean it does a disservice but because we, we have got such amazing talent and, and not just in music across across mm-hmm. the board very you know San Francisco and Amsterdam might be great to look at and might be hotter cities and you might have legal drugs over there that you can't <laughs> do in Manchester but I doubt they've got the artists that they have in this city or as many drugs <laughs> <laughs> So obviously, you know, we talked about legacy and you, you're doing loads and loads of stuff currently and you are planting those trees and you're watering your bamboo plant. Ultimately, what would you like to be remembered for? If I could be honest, just being a dad. That means more to me than any of this arcade business. If, it, if it's more for, for artistic um, legacy, I'd probably like to create the Mancunian version of the Mona Lisa, which would probably Nana calls me cutting out. <laughs> I'm joking. I don't, I don't know. To be honest, I, I, again, I don't have the, I don't have the ego to want yeah. to leave a legacy like that. Again, if we're talking about like planting trees and stuff, my my end game is to make sure that my three girls grow up to be the best that they can possibly be, and then that I can retire in Italy. That's that, that's it. That's the legacy. <laughs> oh, you just thrown that in there. So you got Italy's got a calling for you. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. I mean, we went back twice during the the pandemic. Uh, it's amazing how differently people were responding over there in terms of wearing masks in shops and stuff like that. There was very little conflict uh, in oh, the really? streets. Like you, you got over here where people are doing them strange adverts on underground trains, which we'll not talk about in this podcast. Uh, but yeah, so Italy's probably where I want to retire. I'm already, I'm already thinking that far ahead. Like, hopefully this book, you know, all your, <laughs> exactly. listeners, all your listeners will, will all, all, I pre-book my book and then I can be off. 
When's the book out again? The book's supposed to be out uh, next year. I think at the, end of, at the end of next year, but that's down to the publishers yeah. and editors. Again, like, this is like a, a new field for me again to see the sort of workings on that. I'm looking forward to getting involved in the the cover process and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So give us a flavour of some of those, the Mancunians who are in there. Okay, so I mean, some of them have been on your show. So we've had like Stan Chow, uh, Badger on Boys been on there. A few others, John Thompson's been on there. Thank you, you, you sorted that out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a wide variety and I'm trying to get as many more, but I don't want it to be, like I said before, it, I'm conscious that I don't want it to be famous people like under in the book because then that's sort of doing the same thing that I'm trying to write against. Mm. Their points of views are interesting because a lot of them artists came up through that period so they weren't looking at it from the outside inwards yes, you know yeah. so that, that's why they're in there but I won't be just sort of phoning people because of the famous people it's more because of the the stories and it has to relate to what I'm trying to the story I'm trying to tell yeah yeah that sounds great I can't wait to have that and in my bookcase okay right so we're going to do a quick fire round where would you go to be inspired and to write poetry we're in a flow Oh, wonderful. Few people say that, you know. What, they go and write poetry? No, they don't go and write poetry. (laughs) You've not seen all those people sitting on Werner's Whimsical wannabe poets up there, eh? Get off my patch. (laughs) A lot of people find it therapeutic to go and wander there, they say. Yeah, um, for me, I don't drink anymore, but it used to be my sort of... I'd I'd put a penance on myself that I'd had a messy Saturday night and I had to walk at Werner's Love. (laughs) Is that the hangover cure? That that, that was it. uh, Yeah, it's an absolutely amazing place. Oh, great. And favourite Manchester live venue you performed in? Uh, Night and Day. Mm, absolutely yeah. love that place yeah. um, I find it appalling what's happening at the moment regarding I know. The, the, the noise um, abatement is that is abatement it? yeah um, but yeah loads I mean, more Mancunians know that word now you know yeah as a result of this news well I think yeah I think a lot of stuff over the last two years like in terms of our language has gone through the roof I mean, yeah. everyone, everyone seems to become like a biochemist and knows about <laughs> pandemics and stuff like that I haven't got a clue <laughs> <laughs> what do you order at the chippy a chip gravy balm and it is a balm and do you have that in a tray or yeah, I mean, well, you're asking for a mess then. You only get like wet paper in your, in your, in your food. No and one wants that. As Peter Kay was saying, now moist. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> okay, favourite Mancunian expression? Oof. Um, mad ass, I suppose. Oh, I love mad ass. That's so true. Three words to describe Manchester uh, creative, wet. Fun. No, I'm not saying fun because that's such a shit word. Creative, fun. Sorry, creative, wet, inspiration. Mm. So, lastly, you refer to Manchester as a place where brains meet balls. So, let's end on that. What do you mean? Like I said, it, it's like people are really intelligent and have the balls to sort of pursue world first. Um, I mean, we can go back to... I mean, and she didn't even have any balls, Emmeline Pankhurst, you know, but she, she, she had the brains and she had, she had the metaphorical balls to push forward and get the, the, the female votes. Dave, thanks so much for everything you do to celebrate, help us celebrate this amazing city with your words and for help us to keep telling the story. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me on. Our kid built the city by watering the bamboo tree, by collecting stories from the pubs of Little Island and by giving his friends the middle finger with love. The next episode of We Built This City will be out on the 23rd of December. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you to drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. 
or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Ransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you. Thank you.